0: sermon smith a bi-weekly conversation about the craft of sermon preparation and my name is john chandler my guest today is ken shigematsu ken is the senior pastor of 10th church in Vancouver, British Columbia. I ran across Ken through some articles on preaching today. He had several articles on sermon prep and just some of the rhythms that he's developed to help be able to sustain the preaching that he does. And after reading them, I just knew I had to get him on the podcast. It's been a while coming. I've mentioned him before as I've been looking forward to this interview and glad to finally be able to connect with him and share this one with you. I will tell you that this is Sermon Smith number 89 and Ken reveals something about his sermon prep process that is unique that no one else that I recall anyway, that no one else has mentioned. So uh, that's just a little teaser. I'm not going to say any more about it. I think I mentioned that in the midst of the podcast when he says it. Uh, I appreciate that the iTunes reviews keep coming. Have two more to mention. Uh, Since the last interview, we've got a couple from Cruz, a very clever spelling of Cruz. I hope that's how you pronounce it. And then Chad M. Smith. Thank you to both of you for your iTunes reviews. We're up to 47. Still have a goal to get it to 60. So... If you, you know, if you're one of those special 13 people who can help us get there, please go to iTunes and review the podcast that helps others find the podcast as well. Uh, As always, if you're finding the podcast helpful and you'd be willing to go to patreon.com slash sermonsmith, you can pledge there uh, for each interview that comes out just to help support my time and some of the costs associated with keeping the podcast going. So, all that said, let's move on to our interview today with Ken Shigabong. I'm just going to start by saying this. I lived in Seattle for three years. I helped start a church just north of Seattle and went to grad school in Seattle and never made it to Vancouver, and that's my biggest regret. Well, you'll have to come up sometime. We'd love to
1: show you around. It's a beautiful city.
0: But that that being said, tell us about tell us about Tenth Church and tell us about Vancouver and particularly the part of Vancouver where you minister.
1: Sure, so I came to uh, Tenth Church back in 1996, uh, and at the time uh, the church was graying, it was aging, it, both in terms of the building and the people. Uh, there were maybe a hundred and something mostly uh, Caucasian folks here and uh, the church had cycled through 20 pastors in 20 years, and so wow. there was a lot of turnover. And uh, over the last couple of decades, it's re-emerged as a multi-ethnic church with people from all kinds of cultural, uh, racial, and, and spiritual backgrounds. And uh, it's a church now composed of people of every generation, but a lot of people in their 20s and 30s, families, singles. Uh, and we're located in the um, center, the geographic center of Vancouver. Uh, but we also have sites now on the western side of the city and the eastern side of our city, too.
0: And when you say the geographic center, is that downtown or is it more like urban neighborhoods? What's that yeah, like? Yeah,
1: it's, 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 it's a mix. So we're in what's technically called uh, second downtown. And so on the one side of our church are businesses. And then on the other side of the church, there is a residential neighborhood, and we're right on Ontario Street, which is the literal east-west divide line. So, on our side of the street, the addresses start numbering west, and then on the other side of the street, they start numbering east. Gotcha.
0: And what's the what's the background or what's the tradition that Tenth Church came out of? Yeah, so Tenth Church
1: is part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which okay. emerged in the late 1800s yeah. out of the uh, Presbyterian Church.
0: Right. Okay. Um, and would you say it still is part of that, or is that just the history of it?
1: Yeah, it, it's part of our history, and we're officially part of the CMA, though we're we're seen as kind of on on the edge uh, because we tend to innovate and um, we tend to be seen, I think, in some ways as a maverick church.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so you said you came in 1996. Was that as the lead pastor? Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. What's your, so you— I mean, I see in your bio that you worked for Sony Corp in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. So, what was your path to ministry?
1: Well, I had a had a sense that um, God might be calling me into vocational ministry as a teenager, but I, I wasn't completely sure. And so, I ended up pursuing an undergrad degree in business economics and returning back to Japan where I was uh, born to, to work in the corporate world um, but while I was there I volunteered in a small church in the northeastern section of, of, of Tokyo and just had a growing sense that I was supposed to go to seminary and pursue vocational ministry so it was a gradual thing but now that I'm in it I love being in the corporate world but I, I feel that uh, as a pastor I'm singing the song of my heart and doing what what I was made to do
0: yeah and you, so Back to the church and like my my understanding of Vancouver, even though I never made it there, but my understanding of Vancouver is it is one of the most diverse, at least ethnically, uh, you know, culturally one of the most diverse cities in the world. That's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so and you said the church kind of reflects that is the church. And you said it's even you've got some diversity age wise. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that still I I assume Vancouver is not a cheap place to live. So do you do you even have some. Um, diversity. Uh, I'm I'm losing my words here. Like, is is there diversity even in terms of middle class, lower class, or is it? I mean, is Vancouver as a whole pretty middle class and upper class?
1: Yeah. So there's there's real diversity. And one of the ironies when I first came here was that um, you know the church was middle to upper middle class, and I, I felt that there was no way, given my own uh, very clear limitations as a human being and as a pastor that I could move the church ahead. It had gone through a, a period of significant decline. So back in the 50s, there were over a 1,000 people, and then it had dropped mm-hmm. to a 100 and something, you know, in the mid-1990s. And, and so I felt compelled to pray for guidance as to our future. And uh, one day during prayer, I sensed the Holy Spirit saying, if you will bless those who cannot repay you, I will bless you. That meaning as a church and I didn't know what that meant, but a homeless man ended up dying outside our, our church building. And and so I, I was you know, crushed by that and felt that we needed to open up our building for the homeless, especially on the coldest nights of the year. And so we began a shelter ministry, a feeding ministry, and now we help uh, to connect homeless people to sustainable jobs through a partner ministry. And, you know, the spirit seemed to Pour out in a fresh way as, as we began these ministries, and so on any given Sunday, uh, there may be some homeless folks, some people that are very poor, but also CEOs, professors from the University of British Columbia, uh, people who are very successful as surgeons and as professionals, and so there's a there's a mix not only age-wise and uh, ethnically, but socioeconomically as well.
0: Yeah and with with all that diversity in Vancouver is Vancouver more of a is it similar to Seattle and that it's a fairly unchurched secular city or spiritual but not religious city or does it have a little a little bit more of a you know does it have any sort of historical christian uh <laughs> um tradition going to it or is it a fairly secular city
1: yeah it is it is quite secular and it's been called if not the one of the most secular major cities in, in North America. And so when I arrived here in Vancouver and began to pastor at 10th, I had heard that city hall was not allowing any more land to be given to, to churches or religious groups because uh, they did a study and the study showed that only 3% were in a church or synagogue or some house of worship on any given weekend. I think it's higher than that, but um, it, it's uh it's a rare thing for, for someone in Vancouver to spend part of their weekend at some house of worship, whether it's Christian or Muslim or some other faith.
0: So the church or the city's assumption was if only 3% of our population is doing this, we're not going to continue to value it. It sounds like.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and sadly, a number of churches have gone up for sale across the years and now they're condo buildings. Uh, and once they become condos, they will probably never become churches again.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, tell us, um, tell us then like within 10th church in particular and actually I've I've interviewed a few CMA people not too long ago I had mm-hmm. Jeff and Johnny from 200 Churches podcast as well oh yeah, yeah. Um, so but particularly for 10th church but maybe even a refresher for overall CMA like what would you, how would you describe the role of the sermon in the life of the congregation
1: yeah so the CMA is part of the evangelical uh, church tradition and so uh, we don't, don't actually have a pulpit in, in our church. We use something simpler, but the, the pulpit, in a manner of speaking, is in the, the center of the stage. And so we would regard the word as central scripture as inspired and something that can ultimately lead us to Jesus. So preaching is very important.
0: Yeah. Um Well, then talk about... Uh, you know, I'm looking. I'm looking at your website right now. The you know the podcast, and mm-hmm. I see like the Spirit-filled life and do justice together, Lord's prayer. So, do you do? Do you tend to do like thematic series as you plan out your sermons, or how do you determine what you're going to preach on?
1: Well, when I was a a, a new preacher, I um, you know had a few sermons in my hip pocket, and then I ran out and panicked. <laughs> right? <laughs> what am I going to preach on next? And. I talked to uh, a pastor named uh, Mino Song, who uh, serves out in, in Toronto, a seasoned pastor. And uh, he talked about how when he's seeking to discern what to preach, he has this triangle. And he actually drew a triangle. And uh, on the bottom of the triangle, he wrote word, uh, meaning that the base of our preaching is always scripture, the word of God. And then on the, the left side of the triangle, he wrote the word needs. And he said, when you consider what to preach, think about the needs of the community, uh, the, the things that they're facing, the opportunities. And then on the right side of the triangle, he wrote the word Holy Spirit. Ask what the Holy Spirit is, is doing inside you. And so when I'm planning a series or a particular sermon, I I think, of course, of the word and what is the word saying, but also uh, what are the needs of the community and uh, what is the Holy Spirit doing uniquely in me as far as I can discern it? And we also use this model as we plan out our series for the year. Typically in June, at the end of June or early July, I'll head away and spend a good part of a week planning out the sermon series for the coming year, meaning through September to the end of June the following year. We we basically follow the school year. And typically in the fall, we'll do a series from the Holy Spirit. And so, for example, this past fall, we did a series from... psalms called Honest to God. And we unpacked how uh, God invites us to come to him just as we are and to be raw in our expression of emotion. And so we talked about praying our anger, praying our envy, praying our sadness and depression. And then we'll typically have a series leading up to Christmas, an Advent series. And then in the new year, uh, we'll we'll typically go to a gospel and have a series uh, from, from one of uh, the gospels. And so this past spring, we did a series on the Lord's Prayer, taking it phrase by phrase and developing sermons from that. And then we'll have Easter. And then after Easter, we'll often have a series that comes from either the Book of the Acts or the Epistles with a focus on the Holy Spirit. And so we don't always do this but typically across any given year there is a kind of trinitarian emphasis where in the fall we'll emphasize uh, the love of God the father and in the spring we may emphasize uh, the grace of God the son the holy spirit and or God the son and then after easter uh, we may have a series that um, hits the note of of the work of the holy spirit.
0: Sure. Yeah. So, as you break down, because uh, I've been thinking about this even, you know, we've done a series on parables, and we did a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, so as you break down, even as you go through the gospel, I, this is purely a selfish question on my part now, I'm just asking for my own benefit here, <laughs> uh, but, it, but as, you, as you look through, you know, what are different ways to take and approach the gospels, uh, what are some of the different ways you've done that in the past, you know, obviously Lord's Prayer here, but what are some other ways you've broken that out to try to have a little bit of a focus in Gospels?
1: Yeah, so um, in the past, sometimes we've just gone and focused in on a few chapters. As you mentioned, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, that's been a series that we've done. Uh, at other times, we've looked at uh, questions people have asked Jesus and done a yeah. series on uh, the hard sayings of Jesus. We, we tend to be a church that's very welcoming to People who don't know Christ, people of uh, other religious backgrounds or no religious backgrounds. And and so sometimes uh, I'm told we need to offer more meat and, and you know, go deeper. Uh, and so uh, we did a series on the hard sayings of Jesus. What does it look like to basically follow his call to go and die, you know?
0: Um, right. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit more because that's also a, a fascinating topic for me. in In cities like Vancouver or in cities like Austin, where I am, where you certainly have a, um, you certainly have some people who have a long, steady stream of church background, you know. But you also have a lot of people who come with virtually no understanding of what's in the Bible. What What's it meant for you as you've been planning sermon series and sermons to try to address? those who would say they, quote, unquote, want more meat, and at the same time, you know, address people who come from, you know, maybe maybe almost no Christian background at all, and they're stepping into this completely, you know, completely with a blank slate. How do you try to hold and balance those together?
1: Yeah, and and so, we'll try to have a variety of series, and so, for example— Uh, Last fall, after we did the series in the Psalms, Honest to God, we did a series from Proverbs on money, sex, and power. And and so I feel that 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 sermon series was hard-hitting, and yet it was addressing issues that a lot of people are facing in their everyday lives, money, temptations around uh, sex and and power. Um, Sometimes we'll have a series that focuses on people that are beginning their journey of faith. And so, for example, this coming fall, will likely do a series on the faith journey of Abraham and Sarah and I hope that it'll be on the one hand accessible for people that are beginning a spiritual journey or considering that but also uh, applicable for for people who've been on the path for a while and are seeking to go deeper.
0: Yeah. Well, so all of that, you know, said, talk a little bit then about your personal process when you're actually getting down to the place where you're working on working on. Well, let me let me even ask you this because looking at it, it looks like you bring quite a few voices to preach at your church. So, how often do you preach, particularly?
1: So during the um, the regular year, I'll aim to do uh, three out of four. I'll typically take time off in the summer to do some studies, some sermon planning for the, the the coming year. As I mentioned, September through June and then to take some vacation time. Now, we have five uh, services at our church uh, that are a part of what we call four venues. And up until a year ago, the service times were all staggered, so I could do all five. But now we have two services that are overlap, and so we're fielding two preachers on any given Sunday. And uh-huh. so it appears as though there are maybe more well, there are more preachers, but um, uh, but I'm still preaching typically three out of four uh, during during the regular year from September through through June.
0: Gotcha. And so mm-hmm. you were traveling around to multiple venues because the services yeah. were
1: staggered. Yeah. So t- so in the past, I was doing five on a given Sunday, uh, so uh, three in the morning, one in the afternoon, and one in the evening.
0: Gotcha. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. We actually used to live, uh, when we lived in the Seattle area, we lived right next to one of the campuses for a church. Uh, man, the pastor, I think his name was Casey Treat, and they actually helicoptered him from one campus to the other. So sometimes on Sunday morning, we would wow. hear the helicopter <laughs> fly over our church.
1: Yeah, we yeah. don't have that in our budget for a helicopter. That'd be nice <laughs> to beat the traffic when they have a marathon or some race here, but uh,
0: yeah. Uh, All right. So, um, so Okay, so that being said, I mean, you typically do three out of four. So talk a little bit about your—I mean, because you're also a senior pastor of a mm-hmm. growing, vibrant church. So talk about what does your process look like from week to week of putting any given sermon together? Maybe walk us through that.
1: Sure. That's a great question, John. You know, what? Um, when I was back at my seminary, uh, I— um, I was visiting uh, some years ago. I I went to Gordon-Conwell, just north of Boston. Mm, And uh, my preaching professor, some of your uh, listeners may know this name, uh, was Haddon Robinson. He taught at uh, Dallas for a while. And uh, so I I walked into his office. He happened to be there. And I I said, Haddon, what have you learned recently about preaching? And he said, "Uh, I've learned that the creative cycle, our creative cycle typically occurs over a 10-day period. And so, if you want to preach your best sermons, you need to start preparing ten days in advance. Hmm. Well, that was quite an insight for me because up until that time, I was doing all my sermon prep on the Thursday before the Sunday. And so, in the morning, I get up, read the text, then I dive into some exegetical commentaries, and then some Communicators commentaries. Some time in the late morning or early afternoon, I do an outline, and then I type out the sermon in the afternoon. And then in the the late afternoon or early evening, I would try to put together a study guide for our small groups. And and Thursdays were like the most stressful, dreaded day of my week. And often, yeah, with all that pressure, I found that I was experiencing sermon block. I hated Thursdays. And so with Yehadin's advice, I began to prepare, not the Thursday before, but two Thursdays before, so 10 days out. And every other day, I'd be in the commentaries in the scriptures i'd be outlining writing i wouldn't put any more time into the actual sermon maybe 10 to 15 hours but i found that the pace was much more relaxed and that i was more creative and and that my sermons began to improve and then a few years ago our music and arts pastor john has the same name as you um he approached me and asked if I would be open to getting an Advent devotional guide into everyone's hands, into the the, the hands of our congregants uh, for for the, the Christmas sermons. And I said I think that would be a great idea. And and he said I've lined up a couple of volunteers to, to write these, uh, and uh, they want the your sermon in their hands three weeks before you preach it, so they have time to write it. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, wow. Um, so if the sermon was, say, on December 14th, it meant that I had to be preparing from November 14th, so I'd have a week to basically write the sermon, get it in their hands. And and I did that over that Advent period, and I just stuck with that rhythm. I know it sounds kind of extreme. And so, for example, if I were preaching, let's say, uh, getting ready for a, a sermon on... Sunday, September the 3rd, I would begin to actually prepare the sermon on on August the 3rd, so one month out, and I'd I'd be in the scripture, be in the commentaries every other day, have the the first draft done roughly a week to maybe 10 days later. And then I just let it sit for a couple of weeks, come back to it the, the week before, pick it up the Tuesday before I preach it, do an edit. And then on the Wednesday before, and this is something that may be new uh, for your listeners, I will actually vet the sermon, uh, read the sermon uh, past a group of people, some of our pastors that will be hosting services. There's always a layperson in the group and um, someone who's a woman, and they'll give me feedback. Uh, They'll say what was helpful. And and, um, most importantly, they'll say what could be better, what could be stronger. So just yesterday, I was in a feed forward session and um, people were saying you're all over the map. Uh, it's like a <laughs> spiderweb. It's it's so amorphous. You need to focus, and that was so helpful. And so this morning, before our conversation, I was doing some some editing and and cutting stuff and 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 streamlining. It, it was really helpful. And then um, and then I'll I'll edit uh, the following day, and then I'll review it a few times on Saturday, including once with my wife Saturday night. And because I've reviewed it now, you know three, maybe four times on the Saturday. On the actual Sunday, I, I can preach the message without notes. I might have minimal notes for quote, sure. quotations and PowerPoint stuff. Um, but this process, it sounds kind of extreme because I start prepping a month in advance. It has really fostered a lot of peace and prayerfulness. And, you know, sermon prep is still hard work. Don't misunderstand me. But it feels much more prayerful. I feel much more open to the guidance of the Spirit. And the stress has been vastly reduced.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean... I, you might be, I'm think. I'm trying to think back, you know, you talk about what you did in the early days where you sat down on Thursday and tried to do the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You might be the first person who said they tried to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are certainly people who, you know, designate significant blocks, but to try to do it all in one day. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I feel like for me, uh, 50, minimum of 25, maybe even up to 50% of my sermon prep just happens while I'm going on through life, you know, because mm-hmm. something triggers. Yeah. And, you know, to compress all that pressure into one day, I could see how you would hate that day. Yeah. Now now that you've, you, you're essentially chewing on a given sermon for four weeks, mm-hmm. but you, you know, you do it for a week and then you step away from it. Do you find that, you know, because you're moving on to other sermons, do you find that it's still in the back of your mind and you've got like three or four sermons juggling around in your brain and new connections and ideas are coming to them that you adapt? Or is it pretty much... Once you do that first week of prep, you don't even think about that sermon again until the Tuesday before.
1: Yeah, it is in the back of my mind. And in any given week, I'll be working on two sermons. That's the way it naturally unfolds in terms of the rhythm. But yeah, it's in the back of my mind. And so, for example, I was doing some advanced work on a sermon in a latter part of this morning, and I was on a jog first thing in the morning. And as I was uh, running around a field with our golden retriever, I wasn't thinking about the sermon per se, but an illustration came to mind. And so I think that even if it's in the back of my mind, uh, ideas can can bubble up. And and, and so, yeah. And as, as you're saying, John, you know, as I go through life, some of the best material comes through just everyday life, you know, and uh, working ahead, um, I can observe and, and pick up on things that I wouldn't be able to if it was all crammed into one day.
0: Yeah. And what what do you do with I mean when you're out for a run or when you're um you know with with when you're watching your son's baseball game or whatever it might mm-hmm. be and those ideas come to you what do you do with them? Do you just try to remember them or do you capture them somehow?
1: So yeah, so I've got, you know, a a, a smartphone and so I I rely on Siri a lot. Uh mm-hmm. voice dictation and so I'll sometimes just open up a little uh notepad and and uh, dictate the idea. I've also got this uh fairly new app for me called Omnifocus it's oh, not yeah. a, it's not a free app um uh but it's it's really been worth its weight in gold as they say and so i can um hit the um what, what's that button called at the bottom of the iphone the box. Uh, oh yeah yeah and, and the home i can yeah the home button and i can say uh, remind me on wednesday to use the illustration from you know Korea about the missionary and it'll pop up in my calendar on on Wednesday if that's the day I want to write it in and so um, it's called omnifocus uh, yeah and uh, it's, it's been great. so
0: interesting yeah I mean mm-hmm. I, I use omnifocus as well but I, I don't actually use it for the way that you just described mm-hmm. um, I just use it you know as a simple to-do list but I could see how that'd be really triggering reminders to yourself when you're actually going to be writing the sermon so I assume you sit down Wednesday morning and they're all popping up.
1: Yeah, or, or whenever, whenever day it is, and I, I use it for other things to like remind me, you know, tomorrow to pick up the cherry tomatoes or something like that. You know, sure, so sure. but but I can also use it for uh, sermon ideas. So yeah. yeah,
0: how often do you uh, see something pop up later and you go, I don't even know what I was thinking about when I told myself to remind me about that? That happens to me all the time.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> that happens to me a lot if I'm actually physically writing it down because my. My handwriting is so bad, so I just can't read my handwriting. Uh, but when I um, do it with Siri or OmniFocus, because it's typed in, and I'll do a little editing if it if it um, types something that I wasn't intending, um, it's it's usually pretty good. Uh, and I try to give enough detail so that I that I remember uh, when I see it. So,
0: yeah, that, I mean, that has me wondering because I'll often type in thoughts, but I can see how even if you're dictating it, you're speaking it you're probably going to get a little more detail too yeah. than mm-hmm. if you're capturing a phrase. Yeah. Okay, so you talk about this feed-forward, you called it a feed-forward session mm-hmm. that happens on Wednesday. Right. Uh, but it, you said you read it to them, so by the time you get to that Wednesday, do you have a full manuscript in place?
1: I do. So I I like to have the manuscript basically roughly a week, eight, nine days after I, I started prepping, you know, which the month before, and you know, the the way I typically do it is I'll I'll start in the scripture itself, and then turn to commentaries maybe a couple of days later, and I'll begin to work on what I feel is the hermeneutical idea, the, the the key exegetical idea of the text, and then maybe on a later day I'll think through the homiletical idea, what is the preaching idea. And as you know from experience, you know, that those two often overlap. And so it's not a strict sure. demarcation, but I try to separate the two. And then a couple of days later, I'll start working on an outline, let it sit. And then what I'll do is I will um, speaking of technology, use a program called Dragon Naturally Speaking, which enables me to speak into a device and I'll basically dictate the sermon in one shot with an outline in front of me. And I find that if I do that, I have um a better internal sense as to whether I'm going too long. And so I can edit on the fly and it gives me um, a, a holistic sense of how the sermon is going to unfold. And so that typically takes me, even if it's just a half hour sermon, it'll typically take me at least an hour and a half to dictate maybe up to two hours. Cause I'm also checking resources, but I've also found that if I dictate uh, that the, my voice as it's being typed out by dragon is is more conversational and less like an essay. And so that's helpful too.
0: Yeah. Wow. Okay. So we're about 90 episodes in here, 98 mm-hmm. conversations. And that's a first <laughs> <laughs> where, you know, you've, you've kind of taken the, you know, a lot of people have talked about, they write it and they like to manuscript it. Certainly people have talked about, they like to rehearse it. It's almost like by doing that, you've merged the rehearsing and the writing into a single step. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, it, it, I, I think that, um, you know, stu- studies have shown that um, you're going to be more creative if you use uh, pen and paper, um, if you write something out by hand in terms of the, the early stages, whether it's you're doing some, some webs or you're know, just writing down key ideas. I, I didn't know that from reading. I, I learned that from experience, but later that was confirmed uh, by, uh, by scientific studies um, and I also find, and I think this would be confirmed as well, that you're going to communicate differently through your fingers typing. It's going to have more of a, of a communication feel for the eye. Whereas if you're speaking it out loud, you're going to be communicating more for the ear. I, I, I'm sure that that happens. And so, um, if you can dictate it, uh, there's just less translation is, your listeners now, you know, they, they might type out a manuscript, but once they go to delivery, as you were implying earlier, it, it does change. And, but if you dictate it, there's, there's less of a transition that needs to be made.
0: Yeah. And uh, it's it's funny because I find that when I speak it out loud, that's when I figure out, even though, even though movements look like they naturally flow from one to mm-hmm. another on paper, I find that when I speak it out loud is when I realize, oh, this transition needs some work, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it's not making sense yeah. until I speak it out. Wow, okay. And do you find uh, as you put your sermons together, is there a particular structure that you tend to follow, or does everyone take a different form?
1: Yeah, so you know, I was I was taught by you know, Haddon Robinson, and so his his big idea is the big idea basically, uh, and that is that ideally the sermon has one singular idea that you're driving toward. That doesn't mean that you only share one idea, you know, from the text in the sermon, but all the ideas relate to that one big idea, which ideally you can express in 14 words or, or less. I don't always follow that, adhere to that strictly, but I feel the best way to preach is to have that that singular, singular idea. And then uh, as someone who has the heart of an evangelist, as someone who has been Nurtured in the evangelical tradition, I believe that the goal of of the the sermon is not to provide information, but to foster an encounter with Jesus Christ. And so, wherever and however the text can lead a person to Christ, um, you know that's that's really the goal of preaching. It's not to impress people with my rhetoric, uh, but to hopefully help people see the the beauty of Jesus and, and their need for Him and His grace and how He can restore them to. Uh, the person they were created to be and called to be.
0: Yeah. So, I I mean, do you find that that, obviously there is some informative piece that happens as you're looking at a text because you've done Mm, all this study. So how, how do you, how do you balance? Like, how do you determine, okay, this information is good, but I might be getting stuck in the weeds. This has been a theme that's come up in a few interviews recently, you know, like there's from our study, there's so much we want to talk about. Mm -hmm. Like how, how do you filter out, which is going to help move people and transform people, you know, into the into the, you know, the fullness of Christ that they are designed to be shaped into and which is just superfluous information that's really interesting but not but it's going to turn it into a lecture. Like, do you have a filter for that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. My observation is that uh, preachers generally and especially new preachers uh, tend to err on the side of having too much information and as sure. You know, as other people have observed, less when it comes to preaching is often truly more. And so, um, again, this is something that's been shaped by my training. But typically, as I begin a sermon, I'll I'll seek to open up with with some kind of story that will either surface a need or orient people uh, to the the passage itself. And then I'll, I'll read the passage, pray and then have maybe you know five, seven, eight minutes of kind of didactic teaching around the text itself, uh, you know, setting up the context, uh, making observations of key words and so forth. But then it moves to some kind of um, illustrative um, material and a point of application. And, and uh, it's it, it's not that every sermon precisely follows this pattern, but there's a general pattern where I'll introduce. Uh, the text you know through some kind of story or some kind of quote uh, do some teaching and but then it's always important for the text to be illustrated in some way uh, unless it's a narrative text of course and, and then apply to the life of the hearer
0: yeah okay um so talking about, I made a note to ask you this question and I'm going to circle it back in now. Sure. You know, yeah. talking about the diversity of Vancouver and the diversity of 10th church and that you're, you know, the church reflects Van, you know, Vancouver. What, what, what have you had to do to make sure that your sermons, you know, the content of your sermons can speak to people from so many cultural backgrounds? Like how, how do you hold all that together in a sermon?
1: Yeah, and so you know, I, I don't always do that perfectly by by a long shot. But part of you know what I I, I seek to do is to engage with a variety of people. So we've got a, a large staff now, and I suppose that I could move into more of a teaching role and retreat for a good part of my week into into some kind of study space um, and and basically um, be secluded. But you know, I love to interact with people, and and so. You know, I, I make an effort to be connecting with folks in our community, um, with folks in, in crisis, but also people who might not seek me out. And so typically on Friday afternoons, I'll take the initiative to to be with people who may not have any pressing problem, but I just want to spend time with. Um, I make it a point to spend time with people who uh, aren't churchgoing, people who aren't believers. Um, right now we are. Looking at the the gay issue that's a big issue with a lot of churches and a lot of communities, obviously, and so every opportunity I have to spend time with a gay person or a gay couple uh, I, I I take that opportunity and um, and, and so um, interacting with a with a diverse group of people and then reading books that are not only Christian and theological but books written by people who aren't christians and including novels, I think that helps to diversify yeah. my world
0: yeah. Uh, and then do you find you end up even bringing, do you, do you use a lot of quotes from those books? Like, do you try to bring that in even as, like, other voices to interact with?
1: Yeah, 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 definitely. It, it sort of naturally bubbles up. And for me, I enjoy reading. I, I, I love the movies, and and uh, I enjoy talking with people. And so, um, uh, I think I would do these things anyway. But yeah, as a preacher, there are definitely benefits because uh, these will bubble up as, as, as good material for sermons.
0: All right. Another unique question that I made a note about because you talked about, you talked about how there's five services, but there's typically at least one person, you know, preaching somewhere that, that you won't be able to do that mm-hmm. sermon. What are they preaching the same theme, but their own sermon? Or are you collaborating? What's, what's, what's happening with that? Yeah.
1: So it's the same text, uh, same theme. And because I uh, pr- prepare my manuscript, typically th- uh, it's done three weeks in advance. Uh, I'll send them my initial draft. And so if they can benefit from any of the, the work I've done, th- they're welcome to, to take it and, and, and run with it. But then they certainly uh, make the sermon their own. But yeah, it, it's on the same text, same theme. And occasionally we will use video. So for example, if we have a, a guest a speaker, someone like, say, Shane Claiborne, who will speak on Justice, and we want every service to be hearing the same message, we'll, we'll use video as well.
0: Right. Okay. So the way I found you was, I think I'm, I think maybe it was on preaching today. I ran across, or maybe it's Christianity, but I somehow I ran across an article that you'd written. I believe it's all, it's all blurred together because I also heard your interview on 200 churches, but I believe you, you talked about uh, Sabbath and the value mm. of Sabbath for you. And I feel like even though Even in this article, or maybe it was in this interview, I'm sorry, because this was months ago now. Sure, no problem. (laughs) Um, You know, I feel like you even talked a little bit about how Sabbath kind of shapes your preaching rhythm or prepares you for that. So, even if not, but talk a little bit about just what Sabbath has meant for your own formation.
1: Sure. So yeah I recently took the Enneagram it's a test I think developed by Catholics on you know the, the personality and temperament types and so I came out as an achiever a number three and I'm strength finders. My number one characteristics is competition and so <laughs> it, that's who I am you know I, I think there are a lot of competitive Texans in in uh, Texans right um, as well so uh, maybe I could relate to some of the good folks in your state but um yeah. So Sabbath is really important for me as, uh, as a kind of circuit breaker on my tendency to define myself by what I can accomplish and, and achieve. And it's also a really, an, uh, it's really an invitation to trust. And so when I was in seminar, I can't remember what triggered it, but I felt convicted to start honoring uh, the Sabbath. And I wanted to get decent grades so the door would stay open for a good PhD program down the line, perhaps. Uh, but I decided that I would keep a 24-hour Sabbath, and because I would regularly have Hebrew or Greek exams on Monday morning, and I'm a, I'm a terrible language student, I, I decided to keep the Sabbath from Saturday dinner to Sunday dinner, and it was it was an act of trust, basically, that I, I would trust God for my academic work and my grades, and when I became a pastor, I found that there was a, a similar dynamic that I wanted to use a lot of my spare time and s- time that should have been set aside for Sabbath uh, for for prep work. And and so um, a couple of years ago, I was invited to address this large National Pentecostal Assembly of like a thousand pastors here in Canada. And I'm not a very detail-oriented person, John, and so I hadn't read the invitation very carefully. And a couple of days before, I realized that they weren't asking me to give just one keynote address, but they were asking me to give two presentations and one would require a brand new message. And I looked at my calendar and I thought the, <laughs> the only time I have to prep that, that uh, talk is on my Sabbath. And I felt God saying, you know, trust me, um, you know, rest on the Sabbath and, and, and trust me as you prepare, uh, you know, to, or anticipate speaking and, and so if you're Pentecostal, you know, maybe that's not a problem for you because uh, if you're like, oh, I, you know, you, what, what's, what's the big deal? You just stand up and the spirit falls on you and you thunder out an oracle. Well, I'm not that anointed. Uh, I, I actually need to prepare. Um, but I, I, I didn't prepare much formally and did a little outline, you know, uh, shortly before, but on a day other than my Sabbath and, and God seemed to be really present and, I feel that what Sabbath does, among other things, I mean, it, it prepares me in the sense of it rests me, it helps me to rest uh, and work from rest rather than desperately needing to rest from work. But it puts my heart in a place where I'm reminded that ultimately the work of my ministry and, and the work of preaching isn't about me and my preparation, but it's about God and something that he's building and about the work of the Spirit. And and so, so that... It's been a powerful practice um, in shaping my heart and, and my posture before God.
0: And, and you said you do that on Friday.
1: Uh, actually, I do Sabbath. The, the Sabbath on 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 um, Monday. Actually, it's not but the best you're still, day. You're still doing it on yeah. Monday. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's for a lot of pastors that's not the best day because they're really you know strung out from the Sunday. But I actually feel pretty good on on, on the Monday. So,
0: hmm. okay. Mm. Um, interesting. So you feel like you're able to. Uh, I, in some ways i can see the argument i've heard for monday being a bad day off is because you're still wired from sunday mm-hmm. right do you find that you're able to just say well i'm done and this is in god's hands like is that your hope for doing it on monday that you just you step away and you've done that particular work and it's all in god's hands before you step back into it is that kind of your hope for that
1: yeah that, that's part of my hope for that and then you know sunday you know, come Monday is still six days off. And so I'm not feeling the pressure of it flooding into a Saturday or a Friday, you know? And, right. and then, um, I try to change things up a lot on, on the Monday. And so I'll typically, and I enjoy this. And so it doesn't feel like work, but I'll go for a swim early in the morning, a brief swim, and then I'll, Go to the woods with our golden retriever, and and do a run through the forest trails, and then I'll come back, have breakfast, and take our our son who's in the third grade to school. And so it's very different. And and uh, being in the water, being in the woods, just helps me forget about the Sunday in a good way, and then trust that to, into God's hands.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Well, thanks, thanks for uh, thanks for talking about that because that that was something I I just really appreciated when when I'd read it or listened to it. Like I said, I can't remember where I first heard you talking about that or. Um, talk a little bit, uh, maybe we'll, we'll wrap up just here with a couple more questions, but talk a little bit about maybe some resources that have helped shape and form you, you know, your process or you as a preacher, you've certainly mentioned Haddon Robinson a few times as many others have as well, but what are some others that have been helpful for shaping you?
1: Yeah. So this may be somewhat unexpected, but, um, you know, some years ago, I, I took a pilgrimage to the holy places of Ireland and visited the ancient monasteries and uh, learned about the contemplative life of the monks. And, and so you know, I've really been drawn to things like the rule of Benedict, uh, the, the writings of St. Ignatius of Loyola, and how to discern how the spirit is, is speaking to me uh, in terms of more recent com- contemplatives I've been shaped by. The writings of Henry Nowen, whom many of you readers may be familiar with, sure. and uh, Thomas Thomas Martin, Teresa of Avila, and, and so so for me the most uh, profound influences have been the writers that have drawn my own spirit closer to to Christ in in relationship, and and out of that I feel that that has fed my preaching, and whether I you know I were a preacher or not, I think that I would want to pursue that path anyway because. You know, the, the reason for our existence and our greatest joy is is to know Christ. And so um yeah, I, I found myself drawn to to writers that 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 invite me into a deeper life with Christ and and that in turn has spent my preaching.
0: Yeah. All right. Um I, I also know that you wrote a book which I assume is has a lot to do with Sabbath, right? Mm-hmm. Your God My Everything book. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so that came out of the, the journey to Ireland, the, the, the contemplative path that I was on. And, you know, I, I never intended to, to write a book, but uh, one of my colleagues, Daryl Johnson, who's a preacher here in the city and taught preaching at Regent for a number of years, and I were doing a series at 10th on on Sabbath, and something came up for him. On a Sunday, he was supposed to preach a family Kind of emergency. And so he had to beg off and ask me to step in. I didn't have a lot of time to prepare. And so I spoke extemporaneously about this rhythm of life that I have that was inspired by the monks that included Sabbath and uh, exercise and, and, you know, time with family and meditation and prayer and so forth. And there was such a great response to that message as a lawyer said, I listened to your CD nine times, 10 times. Can uh, we get together and talk about an artist who said, I hate rules. I hate structure, but I want to hear more. Uh, and, and so, um, I was doing some graduate work at that time on the contemplatives and I thought maybe this could become a book. And so, um, I wrote a book called God in my everything. So God, not just when we're praying, but God in my work, God in my family life, God, even in my play, God, even in my rest. And, um, you know, to everyone's surprise, it ended up becoming this international bestseller and all the proceeds, 100% are going to missions that support vulnerable children in places like Cambodia and Southeast Asia. And so we're really grateful for the surprise of the book. And, um, you know, if someone's out there, you know, when I became a pastor, John, um, I was making $200 a month. I was a, a church wow. planter in California. And so I, I literally couldn't afford books. And so on my day off, I would go to Barnes and Nobles and I would pull a book off the shelf and start uh, reading it. And and then I would put a little piece of paper in the book where I'd finished, put it back on the shelf. And I pray, God, please don't let anyone buy this book. <laughs> and I come back the following Monday and keep reading. And so if any of your listeners are out there and they can't afford books, um, I'm glad to gift them a copy, send it from here in Vancouver. Um, you can just pass along my address, my email address or whatever, and, and I'd be honored to, to gift uh, pastors or people who uh, can't afford books um, with God in my everything. So, Wow,
0: that's generous, Ken. Thank you. Well, that's, I mean, that'll, that'll take us to this final question, which is if people want to keep up with what's happening with you or with Tenth Church, like where can they find you online or in the church online?
1: Yeah. So um, yeah. So our our uh, website is simply www.tense. That's spelled out T-E-N-T-H. dot ca. So that's Tango Echo uh, November Tango Hotel. Uh, dot Charlie Alpha. And so our sermons are are uh, listed on the website. And I'm not a big social media person, but my publisher wanted me to be
0: accessible uh, through <laughs> right.
1: through one medium. So um, I thought Twitter requires less characters in facebook so i am on twitter simply um at, and then ken uh, shigematsu just uh just my name uh s h i g e m a t s u and so you can message me through twitter if uh that's uh, that's easier for you to do so
0: got it mm-hmm. well ken uh like i said i've done about 90 of these interviews And certainly there's a lot of overlap, but every once in a while there's things that are just completely unique about what somebody has to say. And I I just appreciate the intention you have towards the craft and the way hearing you describe the different ways that you've shaped and changed your sermon prep as you've been trying to figure out what, what works best for you. Just have a lot of respect for that. So thanks so much for... For te- it took us a while to get this together <laughs> We did hey, Thanks it. for your
1: patience So as I said, I'm not very technical uh, So <laughs> I appreciate your patience with our uh, fumbling process here But uh, John, thanks for having me on on your program It's, it's an honor to meet you and, and I'd love to meet you in person If you make that trip up to Vancouver And show you around our city
0: Well, I'll figure out a reason to get there And I'll let you know when I'm coming Great, I would love to love to connect with you All right, well thanks so much, Ken Blessing Thank you, John Appreciate you Thank you for listening. Notes, uh, links, all of that of things that can mentioned you can find on the website at sermonsmith.com. As always, if you're willing to share uh, this interview or others via Twitter or Facebook to help get the word out, uh, that is very much appreciated. Thanks, friends.